It was a wild night of action with the ending in Toronto and a barn burner there in Oakland. We've got everything you need to know about last night's playoff games. Plus, can Utah do anything to steal a game two in Houston? And an update on Paul George and what his free agency is going to be like. It is the Wednesday edition of Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Locked on NBA. As always, I'm the co-host here, Jake Madison, at Nola Jake on Twitter, the editor of LockedOnPelicans.com and the host of the Locked on Pelicans podcast. I'm John Corrales, co-host of the Locked on Celtics podcast, the co-founder of RedsArmy.com and contributor to Boston.com Celtics coverage. John, we had a pretty wild night of just two games here, and we're going to kick it off with the Cavaliers beating the Toronto Raptors in overtime, 113-112. But before we even get into that game, who you got in a street fight, Kendrick Perkins or Drake? <laughs> I am going Perk all day long. <laughs> what the hell is Drake getting into, man? Uh, that was just a, a little bit of a, a wild scene. Afterwards, uh, Perk texted somebody at ESPN saying that he was kind of busting chops with uh, his old teammate, Serge Ibaka, and Drake got involved. You know, Drake's a co-owner of the team. He's a co-owner of the Raptors. He's like a minority owner somewhere in there. But I don't know if the league's actually going to like somebody who yeah, has an ownership weird. stake. I didn't, I didn't know that, and that maybe changes things a little bit. I also saw on Twitter, and I don't have credit for who it was, someone tweeting out photos where it made it look like uh, Drake was one of Dwayne Casey's assistant coaches yeah. <laughs> standing behind him constantly. It's kind of entertaining, I guess. It's really, it's the most fun thing to come out of this game for a Toronto fan. So it, that's what I wanted to ask you, because this is a brutal ending for them. I don't think this is that bad for Toronto when you kind of look at it objectively, but I think you feel differently. I definitely do because I feel like there's a palpable kind of fear in Toronto, especially going up against LeBron, like Toronto's playoff fortunes are everybody kind of has this, um, I don't know what's the, what, what the right word is for trepidation, like Toronto fans. I think there was a sense of relief after beating the the wizards in six. They're like, Oh, okay. We didn't go seven. We didn't nearly blow it. They, they actually dispatched a team. They, they went on the road and won a series. And I, I think there was that relief in Toronto. And then they had this game. They were in control. And through most of this game, I was thinking they, they, had, they had this. I, I, never felt oh, 100%. Like, I never felt like Toronto was going to lose this game until midway through the fourth quarter. And I was like, huh, they haven't, they haven't scored in a while. And, and they didn't make a, a, a basket for the last almost four and a half minutes of the game. And they shot five of 24 in the fourth quarter. And you started to see some of those misses. You're like, shit, these guys are, are tightening up a little bit. They, they're, they're starting to get a little, you know, they were in their heads. I think that's the best way to put it. Like those looks they had. And yeah, it was five of 24 in the fourth, but the majority of those were good looks that just weren't falling. And some of them were getting down into the rim and then just rounding back out or hitting back iron. And they couldn't get him to fall. 
uh, Valanciunas was, was susceptible for a ton of that. I think but, he missed like 100 shots in the fourth that were right at the rim and couldn't do anything. And that's what makes me feel kind of good about that. You look at how Cleveland played, and they had no business really being in this game other than Toronto just kind of you know, uh, doing what the Raptors do in the playoffs and I guess kind of uh, making that trepidation that you talked about like come real. I think there's there's two sets of analysis that that, are, that you have to go through. One is the the Toronto kind of like strictly emotional analysis that I think is real. Like there's a, a palpable thing in Toronto that makes you feel like, oh no, not again. Like it's happening again that uh, their their big stars that Kyle Lowry freezes down down the, the in the clutch of, of a big game. DeRozan did nothing down the stretch oh, in he a, reverted a to close old, game. Old DeRozan, he was he was taking threes and getting to the rim early on and then all of a sudden it was like long to DeMar late in the fourth. Yeah. So you've got that unquantifiable but still legitimately there fear of everything going down the toilet again for Toronto and people like me on Twitter and a lot of other people making their jokes about Toronto choking. And it's just this thing. And there, there are memes of DeRozan and Kyle Lowry staring off into the ether and, and people making fun of that. That's a thing that every podcast that you're going to listen to on Wednesday is going to have that like, Oh no, not again. But then there's the other side of this, the actual basketball side, like like you, I think, are stressing in that the the Cavs bench finally showed up. But how often is J.R. Smith going to have a six of 11, five of six from three, 20 point night? He hasn't had that in the playoffs. Uh, how often is Tristan Thompson going to check in with 14 points? Is Jeff Green going to give you 16 points on four of four he shooting? Plus 10, he had the highest plus minus, and I don't like individual right. plus minus that much, but my God, he was plus 10 in this right. one. Like, that's not always going to happen here, right? Right. No, not at all. So let us, as much as there there are jokes to be made, there is, and you are correct, Jake, that there is a level of this is not repeatable. Jeff Green and J.R. Smith games like this are not something that I think the Cavs can expect. And if they don't get those types of games, then obviously they don't, they're not even close. But at the same time, LeBron James wasn't exactly LeBron James in this. He had 26. He had 13 assists. He had the 11 rebounds. So he dropped the triple-double. But it at no time it, in it this game that I feel like he was taking over. No, there it's, were, a, it's a triple-double that you kind of look at and you're like, okay, I just kind of expect this for you. And it didn't feel like he was taking over no. the game at all whatsoever. No, this was not. LeBron had chances to take over. And w when the Toronto Raptors were kind of collapsing at the tail end, the last four and a half minutes of the fourth quarter, LeBron had many, many opportunities to step up and do something. And he didn't. In fact, he settled for a lot of long shots, a lot of long threes. And it, it goes back to the thing I was saying last week. I wonder how much energy he has to to carry this team. Uh, also at the same time, you have to wonder, is Kevin Love going to shoot three of 13? So while some of these things aren't going to happen, the Smiths and the greens is LeBron going to have another 40% shooting night is Kevin Love going to have another 23% shooting night. So it may all balance out. Uh, the bigger question I think for Toronto is did um, Fred Van Vliet 
re-injure his shoulder. That's big. And is that going to be something that hampers him moving forward? Because we saw in the in the Washington series, without Van Vliet, the entire bench structure falls apart, and they struggled. When he came back and was healthy, that's when they that he's he's the key to that second unit. So if he's not right, if that shoulder is re-injured, they are in a big, big uh, mess. That, that's when they might have to mix the rotations up. They like to run just a pure bench unit, which not every team in the NBA does. And now all of a sudden it's going to look like you might need to stagger Lowry and DeRozan a little bit more, which isn't what they've done all year if he's out. Because you're right, he makes them kind of tick. And it was, I think, kind of surprising to see Cleveland in the non-LeBron minutes actually win the battle there and come out ahead during that because that's not what Toronto wants to see in this game whatsoever. Yeah, no, that that's a good point because I think the, like we said, the bench was uh, key for for Cleveland, and uh, you know I know this is not how they play. I, I have I, I I found myself in this particular spot though, saying that I I really wish there were more minutes for DeRozan or Lowry earlier on, a little more staggering, and and that's not what got them here and you don't want them to revert to any sort of thing, but eh, you you do have to make adjustments in the playoffs. And so they may be forced to if Van Vliet is hurt. Yeah, I, I don't know. This game was just odd because you kind of look at the ending and everything. And normally game one will tell you a lot, and I don't feel like we actually learned a ton in game one. Like, like you said, there's two different schools of thought about this. And you could go down either path, and I think I'm picking this one because I'm not a Toronto fan, and I don't worry about that other stuff as much as what I'm seeing on the court. But I totally get it that if I was there, like I'd be terrified. And who really knows what we're going to see in game two until we get there. So... A game that was kind of setting the tone in game one was between the Pelicans and the Golden State Warriors. And they, were, they kind of played a weird barn burner in this one last night. And this one's near and dear to me, obviously, with Golden State winning 121-116. Simply put, before we dive into this one, this is just, I think, a case of the Warriors being better. Like, New Orleans gave them their best shot in this one. And Curry coming off the bench and only playing 24 minutes, there was still not enough to overcome this juggernaut that is the Warriors. Yeah, they they really just seem to be too good. When when Steph Curry checked into the game, I forget exactly what the score was, but I think you guys were up. Yeah, and he he just changes the entire dynamic, the entire energy of the building, and and things just happen so fast with the the Warriors. All of a sudden, you know, it's a close game, and next thing you know, it's a 10-0 run in an instant. They you missed the shot. There was a shot. I forget where Etwan Moore missed the three and it turned into a Kevin Durant dunk within three seconds. Yeah. And that is just, that was pure golden state to me that on a, just a simple mystery, it wasn't an exceptionally long rebound. I know sometimes on long shots, the longer rebound, but it was a, a rebound in the middle of the lane, a normal play. And they just go so fast. It was pass, pass, boom, dunk. And you're like, wow. That happens so quickly. There's when they're going like that. There's nothing, nothing you can do to stop them. No, I was I was doing a radio spot before watching the game, and they asked me a question that I found kind of interesting. It said, "If you try and if you're playing the Warriors, is your only hope that they're going to just kind of miss a bunch of threes or not have the best shooting night, and you outscore them?" And I said, "Basically, yeah, because you're, there's there's almost no way to contain them defensively." And the Pelicans did do a much better job, and I don't have all the advanced stat numbers coming in just yet since the NBA site hasn't updated it when we're recording this. But I don't think they burned the Pelicans as much with backdoor cuts and different things like that. It was a lot more 
of just individual one-on-one play kind of doing it. And Steph Curry being absurd. By the way, 27 minutes and he scored 28 points was a plus 26 coming off the bench. That's just an absolute insane number here. But New Orleans (laughs) really kept close. And you talk about the Warriors playing fast. The Pelicans were doing it just as much. There were a number of times you saw them taking a shot and it was still 20 on the shot clock after a Warriors miss. I think they settled for too much random basketball, which is something Anthony Davis talked about after game one, where these guys were just going out, not being organized and just taking early shots in the shot clock kind of going back to that seven seconds or less kind of Alvin Gentry offense of just the first best shot you see, rip it and take it. And that's not how you want to play against the Warriors. You need to play a little bit more controlled. But man, Draymond Green does a good job against Anthony Davis and kind of taking him out of his game. 25 points for Davis on 24 shots. Interesting stat in tonight's game. And I'm curious what someone who's a third party and neutral thinks about this. Davis and Holiday had zero free throws in this game combined for zero. Am I, am I, look, you know, there's Pelican fan in me here. I think some of those calls weren't really good and there's maybe some bias here, but how's that look to you? It, it doesn't look great when you look at the box score. I mean, there weren't a ton of times where I sat there and I said, oh my God, Davis yeah. got fouled. He needs to go to the line. Like he got fouled. There's no doubt that he got fouled sometimes when he was shooting that, but everybody in this game and everybody in the playoffs gets fouled when you're shooting and it's not going to get called. That's playoff basketball. Absolutely. I mean, I just watched the Celtics go through a 12-round boxing match with the Milwaukee Bucks, and it, a lot of things can get called. They just let a lot of things go. I, I'm, I'm a little shocked to see no free throws for, for Davis and for Holiday. And it's not like Davis took three three-pointers, so it's not like he was just bombing away. Yeah, and you look at the points in the paint. The Pelicans put up 66. Golden State yeah. had 38. Like, there's a big difference there in what should be called. On the night, the Pels had nine total free-throw attempts compared to 27 for the Warriors. And that's on the heels of Game 1 where the Pelicans just had 11 compared to 32 for Golden State. So there's some... I, you know, I don't want to ever blame anything on the refs, and there's a million other reasons, partially just the Warriors being a much better team Why New Orleans lost this one but like it's worth pointing out to me and I've got to throw it out here when I've got more of a national stage for everything (laughs) I know I know look like I said there there weren't many times where I said wow you know Pelicans are getting jobbed by the refs I I I just it it happens and one of my things things. like I'm I'm not one of those people who says oh look the the Warriors took 27 free throws and the Pelicans took nine there, there's no rule that says you have to take as many free throws. No, and that doesn't the tell the story team. of what happened. Just pointing out a stat doesn't give you any kind of context around it either. That's why I don't and like it, just hanging my hat on that. If you look at it, the Warriors committed 18 personal fouls and the Pelicans committed 19. So they weren't a lot of calls. It was just when the fouls were being called. And a lot of them were being called on shots for the, the Warriors where the fouls that the Pelicans were drawing were on the floor. So that just happens. And if if you're not getting into the penalty, you're not going to get a lot of those free throws. And and that that really is what pumps up a lot of free throw attempts. When you see the guys that are taking 10, 12, 15 shots, a lot of those guys are getting it because they're in the penalty. So, you know, it's could just, could Davis have gone things. to the line? No, no, no. Sure. It's, I'm not trying. Like I said, we, we're we're talking about this probably longer than I had intended here. It's, I think it's worth mentioning because it's something that kind of jumps out at you. You know, being a Boston guy, what do you think of playoff Rondo tonight? 
Well, I mean, playoff Rondo is near and dear to my heart because <laughs> it's and, and you know it, you look at the way he's been performing these playoffs. Like last year, a lot of people talk about like, well, if Rondo didn't get hurt, you might have lost to the Bulls in the first round. And I always blew it off. You look at the way he's playing, you're like, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe there's a little something to that because playoff Rondo is a real thing. I, I don't know what it is. He, he's bored. I always say that Rondo is like this this genius. He's a savant. And maybe the regular season bores him to tears because in, when the when the regular when the uh, playoffs come around, he just finds this it's different different. It's a weird man, but it's he can be a lot of fun. He he was huge for the Pelicans time. You know, in game one, uh, Davis and Holiday combined for thirty three total points. And when they weren't out and running, which they were doing in that first quarter, where they were only down by one after that, and then they stopped running in that second, and that's where things went horribly wrong for New Orleans. You know, they struggled to get kind of half-court offense going. Rondo tonight working off the ball was huge for New Orleans and keeping this one close for the majority of the game until really the final five minutes or so in it. They were right in there and maybe, maybe had a chance to steal a game before this series heads back. But he worked off the ball masterfully when all of a sudden Davis was getting the ball on the low block. You saw him finally cutting. Golden State's content to let him shoot open threes and to try and score and do all of that. But if he's cutting, he becomes a dangerous player that can score in other ways and isn't that bad shooter on the court that kind of compresses your offense some yeah he's look he's pretty smart and he'll find his way to open spots on the floor I've seen him make cuts before and and benefit off of that he's really good he's really good at getting to the hoop he's really good at at drawing fouls and to see him shoot three or four from three is hilarious to me but uh, yeah Uh, how worried are you that Clay Thompson only shot four of 20 and had 10 points yeah, you know, and he was the leading scorer in game one, and this is a concern because he's not going to be quiet. And again, look, I, you know, New Orleans is going to lose this series. Let's be realistic here, and I have no problem with that. And the fact that they kind of held their own throughout this game, I think they're not going to take it as a moral victory, but I think you've got to look at it like that. This is just a really tough team, and you can't run the same defense you ran against Portland because there's no point in trapping these guys. One, with the height and length that they have, and two, the ability to make passes out of traps early. They're going to torch you that way, and all of a sudden, you're going to have a mini half, uh, you know, fast break in the half court. There's just not much you can do. New Orleans finally got aggressive in this. They gave Golden State their best punch in this. I truly thought it on the road, and there wasn't much they could do. They played inside-out basketball, relied on the three-pointer maybe a little too much at times, but for the most part did what makes them the Pelicans and got them this far, and it just wasn't good enough. It's sometimes just as simple as that. Yeah, I think the Pelicans can steal one at home, but this is probably going to be a five-game series. Yeah, and that was my prediction going into it. So, again, you know, it is what it is, and you just kind of move on. And, you know, you and I will have this talk maybe next week, depending on how the the schedule goes out. But Cousins and this team and what they need to do, because it's a really interesting thing. And, yeah, people, they look great after the Portland uh, series. But now, man, they could use Cousins. Even against a team like Golden State, it would help. So that does it for tonight or last night's action. By the way, make sure you subscribe to Locked On NBA five days a week, recapping everything you need to know that goes on in the association in the playoffs, talking about the biggest stories and previewing all the games. It'll make you a smarter basketball fan. So make sure you subscribe to Locked On NBA. So, John, we got one game upcoming Wednesday night, Utah at Houston for our game two preview. Is there anything Utah can do in this one? Nope. And that's the preview. And that was it. That was, <laughs> that's how we shave the podcast down and keep you guys listening on your drive to work. 
This Sorry, is a tough Utah. one for him, right? You know, like yeah. as much as I like Utah in the regular season, when you have in game one Houston shooting fifty three over fifty three percent from three, almost no one's going to be able to beat him unless it's maybe Golden State. Yeah, that this is, and I was listening to uh, the guys over in the Ringer to talk about it, and Kevin O'Connor is basically. I'm already looking forward to the the Warriors Rocket series. But look, it's the, the Jazz didn't get here for nothing. Uh, Donovan Mitchell has been a superstar in the playoffs. And the question is, can they get Mitchell scoring enough to make this a game? It, really, there's two things. Can you can Donovan Mitchell score enough? And can you get um, Rudy Gobert to be as impactful as he has been defensively? And neither of those two things happen in game one because the Rockets are just so, so good. Uh, they, you can game plan for Gobert. I've said that on this podcast before, and they can take him kind of out of things and get him out of position. And, and a lot of it is also because they are so good. The Rockets are individually. There's so much ISO and there's a lot of tap dancing. If he gets a switch, there's a lot of tap dancing that goes on out there around the perimeter and step back threes and blow you know he gets blown by if he's guarding people on the perimeter because that's not where he's comfortable it's it's just very difficult it's a very difficult uh task for gobert defensively and it's tough for for um mitchell uh i thought the kobe bryant analysis on mitchell was uh really interesting because he's doing that whole new uh thing for espn and uh he he basically said instead of mitchell getting the ball out by half court and trying to attack from, from further back. Like you see like Ben Simmons do that a lot, get a big running head start and get to the lane, but he's a different kind of player. And, and Bryant says, uh, and I'm quoting here, I have to be able to catch it down below free throw line extended down in these corners where now I can operate and shift and get to that rim in two dribbles before Houston can realize what's going on. That's how I can put maximum pressure on their defense by operating in these short porch areas. And I think it's an excellent point and, and something that a former star player can, can come up with that a lot of us don't really notice. Getting that ball when you're Mitchell and smaller and it's, and it's tougher and those, those rockets can, can kind of close down those attacking lanes. To get the ball, maybe, maybe work off the ball a little bit more Maybe they they set some some you know back screens or something to get him the ball in those areas that Kobe's talking about, and then he can attack. And really, what that does is it forces that Rockets defense to overreact, and that's, that's the where part for that. yeah, that's when you either get you know little dump offs or follow dunks, and you can get you know uh, get Gobert some easy baskets following up a Mitchell miss when three guys are trying to block his shot. So that that's one way to at least get some more scoring and, and who knows, maybe some foul trouble and, and that can change a game. It's going to also manufacture them more open three point looks, which is going to be a big thing too. I think you probably want Ingles taking more than three threes in a game. You might want to get Royce O'Neal taking a few more of those guys. If you want to beat the Rockets, that's really one of the best ways to do it. If you look at the first round series against the Wolves, the one game the Wolves won, they shot over 50% from three, hitting on 15 threes in that game. Utah's going to need to do something like that because they're not going to be able to keep up scoring just by just playing kind of two ball versus the Houston Rockets three. And I don't think the Rockets are going to shoot as well as they did but like you said when you're shooting the three ball that well it's going to take Gobert and his defense kind of out of there and it's going to kind of neutralize what makes Utah as good as they are 
Yeah. And, you know, just to show you how ineffective Gobert really was, you got Clint Capella, who I think I've said before is perfect for this Rockets team. 16 points, 12 rebounds in game one was just a killer. That's a killer because that that creates just so much more uh, attention away from the shooters and the shooters are where the Rockets bread is buttered. So uh, it's 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 going to be hard. Utah has to play perfectly. They really have to play perfectly. And it really, beyond the Mitchell stuff, because they're definitely going to need to score more than 96 points to beat the Rockets, they really need Gobert to be impactful. That's where it all starts. And if he is not patrolling the the lane and protecting the rim and blocking shots, he did not block a single shot in game one, and that might be the most important statistic out of game one. If he's not blocking shots, then the Utah Jazz have zero chance to yeah. even stay. They'll get swept. Oh, and missing Ricky Rubio in this really hurts, too, because is he is tough. such a good defender. He can at least harass the Rockets on the perimeter. And if you can't kind of make that up in some capacity, they got guys who can kind of do some of that, but not to the degree that he does, and at least maybe try and funnel some of those shooters down into Gobert. I mean, you're cooked, and it's kind of as simple as that. That's it. There Good, we luck. Go. Easy, Good luck. Easy, easy, easy preview for everything here. So again, make sure you subscribe and listen every day to Locked On NBA, covering the biggest stories on Monday, then rotating hosts throughout the week, catching you up on everything you need to know. So definitely press that subscribe button so you get the podcast whenever it comes out. All right, final segment of the show. And this is a big one because this is kind of impactful to the league as a whole. And I like how you have it kind of titled in our prep doc here. Paul George, gone? Gone, yeah, could be, which would really put OKC in a jam. The story came out today. Ryan Rosillo uh, on his radio show, basically, I'll paraphrase, so I'm not reading the whole thing. But Rosillo is connected to, to people in the NBA. He's a big NBA guy. He knows people in the league. So he, he's not like a, a, a Woj type of newsbreaker. But I don't think he's going to speak out of turn necessarily. But he said uh, – you know, I'm skeptical of sharing it because all of us watching were like, uh, why would you even come back to this thing? And the source, he says, uh, he's gone. I don't know where. It's a he's gone deal. And so Rosillo says this is the first time he's heard from anybody that he trusts that Paul George is gone. And look, publicly, Paul George is going to say all of the right things. He said all the right things when he was in Indiana. And, and he handled turn- that really well there, too, just – requested a trade gave him time to figure it all out this is a bit different though yeah it is it is he's in I I don't know if you're Paul George you're you got to look at this from the you know the management perspective in OKC and OKC is kind of stuck they they have they're definitely going to have Carmelo Anthony coming back and oh he's opting in with without a doubt there's yeah so they're paying next season $35 $35 million to Russell Westbrook. They'll pay about $28 million to Carmelo Anthony and then another $24 million to Steven Adams. So they got $80 plus million committed to three guys. Yeah, a- that doesn't give you a lot to really fill out this team, especially because they don't all fit together. And then you have the comments from Melo the other day talking about how he's not taking a bench role here, which makes the most sense for them. And to try and make a team that functions more as a team, 
They got out and ran and scored in transition because you have superior athletes and it's those guys. But when they weren't doing that, their half-court offense is some of the worst I've seen in a very, very long time. I mean, let's look at this realistically. Paul George is 28, just turned 28 uh, today. Happy birthday, PG. Happy birthday, (laughs) Paul George. How about that? Uh, So – on his 28th birthday, he's got a decision to make. He's got one more monster contract in him because he's somebody's going to pay him a lot of money. He's one of the only guys in the league that can opt out of a $20 million deal and be okay with it. There's a lot of guys, you, like even, even Russell Westbrook couldn't opt out of his deal right now. So Paul George is going to opt out of $20 million and get plenty of money somewhere and, yes. and get, get that through the tail end of his prime. This is it. Do you want to spend the tail end of your prime in Oklahoma City that begins with, you know, year one of that stuck with Carmelo Anthony making all that money? You have no money to to really make any moves. They are way over the cap. They're way over the tax. If he comes back, that's just it doesn't make much sense. If I'm Paul George, I'm looking for a situation where I can be the star player where the complimentary pieces fit around me. I can look at the situations around the league teams. Maybe it is the Lakers. Maybe it's the Clippers. I don't know. Maybe it's Philly. I, all of these teams with cap space. I, I I don't know that it's going to be any one of those teams, but he can at least say, I've got a point guard here that does this. And I've got these shooters here that do this. And well, I can see, that see there's cap just a space. plan going forward too, which is, I don't know exactly what OKC is going to be doing. And there's also talk that, you know, uh, Donovan's not going to be back next year, potentially. And it throws everything into doubt. And, you know, eventually I think we kind of saw this day coming for this franchise. And, you know, it seemed like they'd kind of kicked the can down the road as far as they could. And now all of a sudden you're starting to hit the wall or the end of that road. And it's going to cause them a lot of issues. I think OKC is a great example of a small market team that had no choice but to go for it. And they they had the opportunity to construct a what on paper could have been a really, really good team. They had Westbrook that they had they had just lost Kevin Durant and they had to they had to offer Westbrook that supermax contract. You don't have they had no choice. No, they had to go for it. You were in position to, you know, you have the money to do it. You know, they've been good about the, the tax and everything like that. You absolutely had to go for it. And eventually it's just going to end. That's how it's going to go almost with every team usually. And you end up paying the price of going for it. But going for it is well worth doing that. Yeah, you, you have to. Because when you're Oklahoma City, you're what not going to get the next star. Yeah. You're not going to get the next guy just randomly just saying, yeah, okay, I'll go to Oklahoma City. Westbrook is your best chance. Warts and all, he's your best chance. So they had to do a lot of what they did, but now they have to undo. They tied a lot of knots, and now they have to untie it. And I just don't know. They're just going to have to sit there with Carmelo next year because who's going to trade for Carmelo Anthony on no, twenty eight I mean, million no, no one's going to do that. He's he's staying no. there. He's he'll, he'll have that there. He's not going to go anywhere. And maybe Paul George resigns. You know, this is just our opinions on what he should do, just based on objectively looking at it. But you know, what goes through the mind of an NBA player is a little bit different. And if he resigns there, good for him. He's going to be happy, and they'll still be a playoff team. You just don't look at them be as being a serious title contender. And sometimes that's okay. I don't look at Memphis and what they did with the grit and grind era and think that that was a failure either because man it seems like they had a lot of fun there too right no there is value for teams that are are in smaller markets that you you contend 
or or at least a playoff contender or maybe a home court contender. And that that's good enough. And and you just don't want to bottom out. So those, those gates, those receipts, the playoff money, that, stuff matters. That, that means, that means something to means something to their ownership. That's for sure. Uh, my final comment on this is we knew going into this season that the Paul George trade was basically going to be a disaster what we didn't realize is that it was basically a disaster for Oklahoma City rather yes. than Indiana. And it's shocking. That is such a shocking development. And I feel bad for OKC. But, you know, like I said, they've got a lot of work cut out for them. And, and it would be real interesting to see what they do going forward. Yeah, and it just sounds like he, he legit is conflicted about staying or leaving. And I think we kind of understand whichever way he goes. I don't think any of us will have any hard feelings for him if he ducks out of there to a better situation. So that's going to do it for the Wednesday edition of Locked on NBA. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you subscribe and also subscribe to the podcast of your favorite team. Every Wednesday, it's me, myself, Jake Madison, at Nola Jake on Twitter here with you guys. And I am John Corrales at Reds Army underscore John. Follow me for all of your Boston Celtics, Philadelphia 76ers coverage. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with you all next Wednesday.